0: You're in the Waterloop.
1: Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop. Waterloop is made possible in part by grants from Springpoint Partners and the Walton Family Foundation. Waterloop. Hi, this is Travis with Waterloop. Right now, more than half of the United States is in some form of drought. It's not just out west. It's up in the Pacific Northwest. It's in the upper Midwest. There's drought in New England, and there's even dry conditions here in North Carolina where I live. Almost 80 million people live in some part of the country where there's drought. During times like this, every drop really does count. Showerheads are an easy way to conserve water in our homes. That's why I use High Sierra Showerheads at my house, and I'm really proud that they're a sponsor of this podcast. They carry the EPA WaterSense label for water efficiency and use 40% less water than conventional low-flow showerheads. They use just a gallon and a half a minute. So what does that come out to? For every minute you're in the shower, you're saving one gallon of water. You take a 10-minute shower, that's 10 gallons of water you have not used because you have High Sierra showerheads. Over the course of a month, that's 300 gallons of water that have been conserved. You're going to also save on your water bill and your energy bill. You can get 20% off using promo code LOOP20 at highsierrashowerheads.com. You're in the Waterloop. Welcome to Waterloop. This is Travis going to be talking about Clean Water Act for this episode and its jurisdiction and what's known as waters of the United States. I am honored and delighted to be joined by two guests who, are, who have been extremely close to this issue, as close as you can really get. Uh, they were both the former, former heads of the Office of Water at the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, a role called Assistant Administrator for Water. I have Ken Kaposis. He held this role under the Obama administration. Ken, thanks for joining the podcast. Thank you and also have dave ross he held this role under the trump administration dave thanks for coming on as well
2: yeah thanks travis thanks for the inv- invitation yeah i'm
1: i'm uh really excited to have both of you and have your incredible perspectives and knowledge brought to this issue so for for listeners uh I want them to know that we're going to take a little bit of time and kind of go over the history of Clean Water Act and Waters of the United States, just to set the table here. Uh, and then we're going to spend a lot of time getting your thoughts on on this complex issue and its storied history uh, and th- there was a, a new chapter in that history just written uh, at the last days of August where a judge federal judge in Arizona uh, struck down the uh, the Trump rule and we'll touch on that and what that could mean as we go along so great looking forward to this really excited to have folks for, from two different uh, parties you know that were served under two different administrations here so Ken let's uh, start with this question for folks. What is the Clean Water Act?
0: Well, fundamentally, the Clean Water Act is the federal law that protects our surface waters from pollution or destruction. And by surface waters, these are lakes, rivers, streams, uh, wetlands, and uh, near shore ocean waters. And um, the Scope of the Clean Water Act, I think, is summed up in its, its initial sentence, and the objective is to restore and maintain the chemical, physical, and biological integrity of the nation's waters. So it's, it's extremely broad in in, it, in its intent as to what Congress intended it to do. And the way it works is, is uh, it, it's complicated, yet simple conceptually. It prohibits the discharge of a pollutant from a point source without a permit or otherwise in compliance with the law. Now, the concepts of discharge are broadly defined in the act, a pollutant is broadly defined in the act, and what constitutes a point source are broadly defined in the act, and take up reams of uh, paper in the Code of Federal Regulations. But as I said, conceptually, it's it's fairly simple. Mm-hmm. I think it's also important to understand that EPA has the general oversight for implementation of the act, uh, but Uh, The Corps of Engineers also has a role uh, in the permit of dredge or fill material into waters of the United States. Primarily, they exercise it in wetlands. And also that the day-to-day implementation of the Clean Water Act is carried out at the state level by the states with EPA assistance and with EPA having an oversight role.
1: Thank you. And uh, we are coming up on the, the 50th birthday of the Clean Water Act in 2022, I believe in October, if I recall correctly.
0: The 18th of October.
1: All right. Got the month right. Um, uh, Dave, this this waters of the United States, uh, this term, and a water being covered under the Clean Water Act. What, what does that all mean?
2: Well, I think there's a, a bit of a misconception when people talk about Waters of the United States and being covered under the Act. Uh, the thing to remember is the Act defines waters of the United States or defines navigable waters as waters of the United States. It's a term of art that really triggers the regulatory programs of the Clean Water Act uh, that Ken so helpfully laid out. You now uh, Ken mentioned the overall objective of the act is to is to restore the nation's waters. But underneath the act, there are there are regulatory programs and then non-regulatory programs. And so, as we're talking about waters in the United States, I think it's helpful for people to remember that when you're talking navigable waters, when you're talking waters in the United States, you're talking about the regulatory programs. When do you need a permit? You know, when do you need a permit to either discharge a pollutant or to do uh, uh, development activities in wetlands? And so, and it's also where uh, the, the major water quality standards and a lot of the regulatory programs that the states implement on behalf of the federal government you know where those standards are applied or are applied to the waters United States so regulatory framework versus the non regulatory framework of the Clean Water Act it's actually a very very comprehensive statute as as Ken um, uh, mentioned and and it does a lot more than just cover waters United States
1: mm. so uh jurisdiction who is responsible uh, for determining jurisdiction of the Clean Water Act
2: well I'll, I'll take that Travis um sure. yeah I, Uh, Ultimately, it's EPA. EPA is the final authority over what is or is not a water in the United States. What is the jurisdiction of the Clean Water Act? Um, This was actually an open question in the in the 1970s because the Corps is given such an important role under the program, and they run the 404, the wetlands permitting program, the dredge and fill program, and so practically speaking, the Corps is making determinations over jurisdiction on a daily basis. And so if you go out to the core districts, they really are, you know, the nation's experts on the day-to-day basis as to determining jurisdiction. But if there is a dispute and who gets to decide an actual jurisdictional call, ultimately, um, and there's an attorney general's opinion in the 1970s that that is sort of with, with, withstood, withstood the test of time. Ultimately it's EPA's decision as to what is, or what is not a water United States subject to clean water act jurisdiction.
1: Well, Thank you both for kind of laying out some of that critical context there. Uh, so getting into the, the history, when did these significant questions about jurisdiction arise? And, and what were the issues? Maybe I'll, I'll put that one to Ken.
0: Okay. Well, interestingly enough, you you mentioned that we're coming upon the 50th anniversary of the Clean Water Act next year. Uh, And the the significant questions about jurisdiction arose uh, as soon as the Act was enacted, actually. Uh, The uh, Congress uh, tasked both EPA and the Corps with responsibilities under the Act, as Dave said, and that. uh, EPA took a very broad view in its regulatory definition of what constituted waters of the United States, and the Corps of Engineers took a very narrow view, limiting it to the, only those waters that were truly navigable, in fact. And uh, in part, that was because that was the history of the activities of the Corps. The Corps had had regulatory responsibilities in navigable waters dating back into the 1800s. And when Congress used the term navigable waters, the Corps chose to define it narrowly within, within its scope. Um, There was was litigation. The Corps was ordered to revise its definition. As Dave mentioned, uh, then Attorney General Civiletti issued an opinion in 1979 that said that the decision on what is or is not covered by the Clean Water Act belongs to EPA. And so once the Corps revised its definition, it closely mirrored that of the EPA. And so since the late 70s very early 80s, EPA and the core have had highly similar they're not necessarily hundred percent identical but uh, the differences are so nuanced that if it's a practical matter it, it really doesn't make any difference The core and EPA have been working off of the same uh, format as to as to what is regulated so, jurisdictional issues started to arise, not so much over uh, the lakes, rivers, streams, near shore waters, as I mentioned, but primarily around wetlands and around uh, people who wanted to do development in wetlands or people who actively worked in wetlands. And the people who actively worked in wetlands most commonly around the nation were uh, in the agricultural sector. And so the activities that pr- prior to 1972 may not have required a permit uh to be conducted suddenly may have required a permit to be uh to be conducted and uh it also affected people in the uh in uh, the property development industry and in the resource extraction industry and so it became it became necessary to further embellish what or not embellished, but to, for, to further inform people as to what was or was not covered uh, by the by the Clean Water Act because of this new broad uh, regulatory program that Congress had enacted, and um, and so the the uh, use of the term waters of the United States as the define as the definition of the term navigable waters, which is the term that's used throughout the uh, throughout the Act, created this tension. Be- Between people who said that the act should be limited in its scope to only those truly navigable waters and those who indicated that waters of the United States should be interpreted as broadly as it could be under, uh, the, uh, under the authority that Congress had granted to EPA and the Corps.
1: And I really want to know then, uh, what actions the agencies started to take? Um, I think that uh, under the Bush administration in 2007, 2008 uh, is when kind of this uh, this chain of events, if you will started. So maybe Dave, could you explain what what happened then under the Bush administration?
2: Yeah, sure. Well you know I guess um, you know the law of the land when the Bush administration came in was you know based on the 1986 and 88 versions of EPA and the core, of engineer regulations. You know, over time, um, the courts would weigh in as to whether or not a water body is is jurisdictional or not. Um, and, and that, you know, th- those disputes made it up to the Supreme Court in 86 in or in the in the mid 80s. And again, in early 2001, um, it made it back to the Supreme Court, you know, and over a dispute about um, jurisdiction over wetlands, you know, connected to ditches that eventually flow into other waters, which eventually get into a navigable water in a in a, a Supreme Court decision in 2006 called the Rapanos case, um, and that really, you know, as, as the tension you know in the disputes would grow over the decades, I think that's really a, a high mark, or perhaps maybe a low mark um, in in the dis- debate over what's a water in the United States, because you had a fractured opinion, the Supreme Court a four four one decision with uh, you know four justices on on both sides being fairly clear about where they thought the scope of jurisdiction was. And then a single justice, Justice Kennedy, who wrote uh, an opinion joining the more conservative uh, court members in an outcome of the case, but having a, a different view about how you establish jurisdiction. And, you know, in that decision, uh, even the Chief Justice at the time expressed some frustration uh, with EPA and, and the court over not better defining in regulation what is the water of the United States, particularly these more attenuated waters um, and so EPA, uh, under the Bush administration, you know, thought about doing rulemaking, but ultimately put down guidance, what's been called the Rapanos guidance. And they, and they first developed it um, in 2007 and updated it in 2008. And they tried to put down some guidance as the different categories of waters. And, and as Ken mentioned, there really isn't much dispute until you get out into whether or not in the drainage territory, the intermittent or ephemeral drainages or wetlands that are not really right next to other significant waters. Um, And so they put down guidance and they aimed after, you know, know, what is a significant nexus test under Justice Kennedy's individual decision. Um, And and that, you know, is how EPA and the Corps have, uh, using that guidance, have uh, implemented the 86 regulations over time. Um, But it, you know, I think to some members of the regulated community, um, it sort of lacked the certainty that I think folks or, or would prefer to have in a rulemaking
1: mm. great and then if we we jump forward uh to the obama administration and ken at the time you were at the agency uh leading the office of water um, what what rulemaking happened then what what was the activity and and the intent there
0: okay well first off, i want to say that they did a really good job of kind of laying the groundwork of what we inherited coming in um when uh in 2000 2008 i was uh i was on capitol hill and people were asking congress to please legislate in this area uh because uh nobody liked where where things were and uh of course people asking uh for a change uh some wanted it to change in one direction some some in in the other but the one thing that was certain was that nobody liked where things were Um, we had the swank case in 2001 and we had the rapanos case in 2006. Uh, both of them affected how the agencies should be implementing the the law, and yet the regulation that underlied all uh, the actions of the two agencies hadn't changed at all. Uh, neither of those Supreme Court cases said that the uh, d- invalidated any of the regulation, but what the court said the agencies should be doing did not match up well. So the agency decided that it was going to undertake, uh, regulatory action. As Dave said, the Bush administration talked about doing it. Um, there was some pushback in what they were talking about and they decided just to leave it alone and go with guidance. Uh, but guidance is not particularly popular in the regulated community because of the lack of certainty that Dave mentioned. Um, and in, in, candor, one of the problems with lack of certainty is all agency guidance says clearly on its face, the agency is not bound by it, and it confers no rights in a, in a regulated entity. And secondly, it's very difficult if you want to challenge guidance to uh, bring a court case uh, and get a judge to rule that guidance is arbitrary and capricious, where the uh, agency has said it's not binding on anybody. So uh, we set out to... Uh, to uh, develop a rule, um, went through an extensive process, um, which we can talk a little bit more about later, but uh, went, uh, decided that the, that the best solution uh, was to issue a rule. Uh, during the Obama administration, we also looked at, at doing guidance. Uh, to try to clarify the jurisdiction. But ultimately, in coordination with the various parties that were involved and and our colleagues within the executive branch, uh, we decided that a regulation is really what was called for uh, to provide more clarity and more predictability on jurisdiction under the Clean Water Act. Mm.
1: And what if you could summarize maybe the the gist of the regulation uh, that came out in 2015? Where, where did it go? What, what was what was the, the thrust of the of it?
0: Well, the the thrust of it was to match uh, the regulation with what the uh, what we knew from the Supreme Court uh, in both Swank and Rapanos, but most importantly in Rapanos. It was trying to reconcile the test that the court had laid out of significant nexus. Uh, that uh, uh, Dave mentioned that Justice Kennedy based his, his concurring opinion on the significant nexus test. That significant nexus test was also uh, a, a part of the court's decision in Swank in 2001. And so the agency felt that that was a, a good place to go uh, in terms of establishing, establishing uh, how waters were connected to each other and, and how far the agency's authority should uh, extend in protecting waters from pollution or destruction. It was also, we thought, time to better inform the public, the regulated entities uh, in particular, but also those who felt that the waters needed to be protected as to what the agency felt uh, were waters that were covered by the Clean Water Act where uh, and waters that were not covered by the Clean Water Act. That was a, a key component in both instances. Uh, we felt that we were trying to do or that we did a better job in and being more clear as to what's included and also more clear as to what was excluded, there were different exclusions uh, that were uh, that were not binding on the agency because they were part of a preamble, and we incorporated a lot of those into the rule itself to bind the agency and, and limit its uh, its scope of what was jurisdictional
1: great, thank you uh, and then to the next administration, the Trump administration. Dave, when you were heading up EPA's Office of Water, um, you all took regulatory action. Could you explain that?
2: Yeah. Well, you know, first, I I think the, you know, the important thing is the Obama administration did roll up the sleeves and do the hard work of doing a rulemaking. Um, As Ken mentioned, both the 2001 and 2006 Supreme Court decisions did affect uh, the way WOTUS was implemented out in the field. And and there was tension between what was on the books and what was actually being applied out in the field. And so, you know, to, to roll up the sleeves and do the rulemaking, um, really, really hard work. Um, and also to, you know, to begin to define in some of the exclusions what are in and what are out. And so with that foundation laid, um, there's a lot of litigation, really not about, you know, whether or not to do the rulemaking, but it really was about, um, you know, how far the rulemaking went. And there was you know, you know I, I think Ken will appreciate that. Uh, I'm sure he was attacked for not going far enough um, and was also attacked for, for, for going too far. And so there's a lot of litigation, particularly with the states. Um, about 31 states sued the Obama rule and had some success early on, which quite frankly led to a patchwork of regulation on the landscape where you had different regulatory regimes based on which state that you were in, and I think everyone agrees that is absolutely bad government. Um, and so the, the 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 Trump administration came in in an executive order, said we're uh, ordered EPA to revisit uh, the 2015 rule, um, and so I was charged with doing that. And the approach we took really was to you know, given the litigation profile, um, you know, do a two-step rulemaking where we effectively took the Obama rule off the book and then set about um, our task of, of rewriting WOTUS. Um, and so, you know, the two-step framework, which I think, you know, Ken, will, you'll maybe mention, you know, coming up as we walk March chrono- chronologically through, the theory was, you know, because of the litigation, you know, the two-step rulemaking, the first step would be, depending on what happened on our second step the baseline would default back to the 86 regulations which as, as Ken and I both mentioned were there were known not a lot of people loved them but at least it was a you know a, a multi-decade uh, framework that people could rely on as we then went and did the Trump rule I'm um, Travis I, I think you 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 asked Ken to give a little bit of overview of what you know the Trump step rule step two rule was about you know practically speaking you know what we tried to do is build off that the certainty where the Obama regulation was going on, you know, what we're, what are in clearly in and what are clearly out. And then I think what we try to do is, is eliminate some of the subjectivity um, associated with a significant nexus test. And so really try to go a step further and uh, from a clarity certainty standpoint and, you know, put down what truly categorically what's in and categorically what's out um, and then kind of build out some of the definitions. Um, and so, you know, the, I think the major changes jurisdictionally were were obviously in the you know the ephemeral versus the intermittent cutoff on, on which flowing waters are regulated. Um, the Trump administration drew a pretty pretty bright line between you know in, all intermittents are in, um, but the ephemerals are out. And then I think there was a you know you know replacing significant nexus with additional tests for how do you regulate wetlands, um, and you know so um, you know, bringing the, 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 watershed in closer to regulated watershed in closer to the main, main stems of, of the regulated waters. Um, and again, you know, uh, it, to no surprise, um, you know, the Trump rule, uh, was immediately litigated as well. And, uh, that leads us to a new administration in a new time. So maybe I'll we'll turn it back <laughs> over to you, Travis.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, yep, as you said, the, the uh, political party in the, in the White House has, has flipped again, and you have the Biden administration, uh, and they've uh, s- uh, sent signals on, on waters of the United States. Ken, could you uh, maybe cover just what the latest is from this administration, and then also mention the court ruling uh, in Arizona and what implications that has?
0: Sure. Um, Yeah, the 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 Biden administration has indicated that it wants to revisit the subject again. uh, uh, And, uh, and is looking to uh, revise the definition of what is a water of the United States under the Clean Water Act. I think that the and in the interim, it was their intent to allow the uh, the prior administration rule to continue. Uh, the, it was no secret that, uh, that the incoming administration was likely to take a more expansive view of what is covered than the uh, prior administration did. Uh, that, I think, was, would be expected by everybody who's involved in, in, this, in this conversation. Uh, but it, they also made it clear that the, their intent was not to simply do a, a resurrection of the 2015 rule. Uh, that in fact, they wanted to go through a process. Uh, People had seen the 2015 rule. Uh, There was experience with the 2015 rule in about half of the states, as Dave mentioned, Uh, the the patchwork. uh, uh, If you looked at a map of the 50 United States and and territories, you would see uh, it definitely looked like a patchwork as to which rule applied uh, in which states. And And I don't think anybody would find that to be a way to, to run a regulatory program. So what, what the, uh, uh, what the current administration wants to do is, uh, they're currently engaged in a process of public outreach, and, uh, then they intend to take a, uh, a new fresh look at what should be included in the clean water act. As you, as you mentioned, um, just, uh, late last month, uh, district court in Arizona sided with people with uh, some tribal interests primarily that were challenging the, the uh, prior uh, or existing rule that was issued under the Trump administration. Uh, the judge uh, did two things, remanded the rule back to the agency, but also uh, with vacature, which meant that the rule would not be available to be used in any of the 50 states. So uh, at this point, Uh, I don't think EPA publicly has, EPA did not ask for vacature, EPA asked for the remand to the agency to reconsider the rule, uh, which made a lot of sense considering that the agency had already publicly announced that it was going to reconsider the rule. But uh, uh, there were uh, the parties, uh, the the plaintiffs did ask for vacature and the judge granted it, suggesting that in the Ninth Circuit, uh, the precedent was extremely unusual that a rule would be remanded to an agency but allowed to remain in effect, uh, if you were so uh, this current status is uh, the judge has ruled uh, that the prior administration rule is not to be used. And uh, EPA has, to my knowledge has not yet made a public announcement as to uh, how uh, what they see as, as their next step going forward.
1: You know, I I with Waters of the United States, I feel like I'm at a tennis match, right? When you're and you see the audience and they're just looking back and forth, and there goes the ball to that side and that side. It's just uh, you know, back and forth, back and forth. Um, I I do want to mention, you know, and I think you both uh, agree, and the the same career staff have been at the office of water throughout so much of this back and forth Um, and it's just incredible to me to see the work that they put in serving uh, you know the different administrations and like you both have said this is hard a lot of hard work a lot of sleeves rolled up hours and hours months and months years and years Um, and so i just kind of want to give a shout out to all those folks that that worked under both of you all right, so let's let's roll up our sleeves here and and, uh, and have a little more fun. Why why is it so difficult to define Waters of the United States? Why is this so challenging? Why does it keep going back and forth? Um, maybe uh, we'll start with Dave. Your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, well, hey, thanks, Travis, and, and thanks for the shout-out to the career staff. They truly are amazing, um, you know, amazing professionals, and, you know, I just – you know for them to continue to have to do this um it's it's i just i love them they're great people and so thank you for that shout out um so you know why is this so difficult well one because congress failed us um you know back in 1972 when it so helpfully defined navigable waters as waters of the united states um and so you know, in, in the legal terms, you know, where you have sort of ambiguous statutory uh, constructs, um, you know, it's up to the regulatory agency with expertise to sort of fill that, that knowledge gap. And the agencies, both the core and EPA, have been trying to do that for 50 years. Um, and, you know, resulting in a tennis match. Um, some might say it's even getting closer to a ping pong match. Um, <laughs> and the ball's accelerating. Um, and that, you know, I think we all agree that that's just not great government. And so I think, originally you have to look at congress as as the original problem um you know the other thing i think um there're a lot of reasons but it the other is to do a nationwide rule with with such different hydrologic regimes in the landscape that is really really difficult so you know i mean i've lived in you know california and wyoming and in virginia and vermont and wisconsin and you know i just you, know, you hike work live Canoe and land. Um, every single water body is different, and to try as a as a nation to regulate with one set of rules, where water means different things, whether or not too much, too little, in different parts of the country, um, is is really challenging. And then feathered on top of that, you've got state rights, state authority, both regulatory on water quality, but also water rights. Who gets to tell, set you know who gets to say what you get to do with the water. It just makes it. It's just a recipe for impossible regulation, and so I think I'd I'd put it there: hydrologic regime and um, and Congress.
1: Mm, Great, Uh, Ken. What are your thoughts on the the difficulty of this task and and why it's so complex? And to to get to get a landing spot here.
0: Well, first, I want to join both you and Dave and say that uh, I've never i I've spent well over 30 years working in the political arena in Washington, most of it on Capitol Hill. But my time at EPA, I've never worked with as dedicated a team of professionals as I found at EPA. Um, I often said, you know, uh, I, one of the great blessings at EPA was virtually everybody that works there came there because they wanted to work at EPA. Um during my time on Capitol Hill, I worked with an awful lot of people who didn't care about anything, except they wanted to get experience so they could leave Capitol Hill and make money. Um, and nobody at EPA uh, is making money uh, commensurate with their level of expertise and dedication to the job. So uh, so uh, they, they serve all administrations ex- extremely well. Um, well, in, in getting back to your question, I think... Uh, um, I think Dave Dave makes a lot of good points. Uh, Congress is uh, certainly part of this equation. I think that uh, one of the things I would mention as well is that uh, you have to realize this is difficult because Congress's power is limited. And therefore, the federal interest is limited and lines have to be drawn. Um, You know, I was always envious of my colleagues in the Air Office because we knew what the Clean Air Act applied to. It applied to the ambient air that surrounded us. Uh, We knew in the Office of Water what the Safe Drinking Water Act applied to. It applied to the quality of water at the tap. But when it comes to defining what is subject to the Clean Water Act, now you have to draw lines. Uh, because Congress's power is not, uh, is not limitless uh, when it comes to uh, surface water features. I once spent a day with uh, scientists from the U.S. Soil Conservation Service out in the field to do wetlands delineations. And one of the telling things that I've always remembered from that trip was the scientists telling me, I can tell you what's dry land and I can tell you what's a wetland. The hard part of my job is telling you where to draw the line. Mm-hmm. And that is true uh, throughout the Clean Water Program. Is trying to figure out when is when is a when is a small stream sufficiently important uh, based on its downstream impacts to the navigable waters that it feeds into? When is an adjacent wetland something that is impacting the quality of the water to which it's adjacent? Or as Justice Kennedy said in his concurring opinion, sometimes a a, uh, a wetland is important because it keeps water from getting to uh, navigable water. It serves as a collection point and a, and a way to, to saturate the groundwater and recharge groundwater. So the answer, there is no perfect answer. Hmm. And because there's no perfect answer where people can go uh, you know, to a data set or, or otherwise draw a conclusion that nobody could dispute, uh, in many instances, then it leads to, it leads to this confusion, and it and it leads to uh, the what we're going through right now. Uh, I, I personally think that we weren't doing badly uh, until uh, the Supreme Court decided in uh, in in, uh, in Swank, but most importantly, when the Supreme Court issued that fractured opinion in Rapanos that Dave referred to, uh, it threw the it threw everything into a state of confusion with. Uh, with various interests, all arguing that the Supreme Court had was on their side. And, uh, and then it left it up, unfortunately, to the agencies to try to clear up this muddled mess, uh, that Congress is incapable of addressing.
1: Fantastic perspective from you both. Um, we're going to keep going along these lines. And, I, you know, I mentioned before this podcast, I was really excited to have uh, two people on from two different uh, political party administrations to have uh, a candid and productive conversation, um, something that I think is somewhat lacking or, or very lacking in these times. Um, and when we've chatted off off air, uh, it's been really interesting. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to these thoughts here. Um a lot of misconceptions, I think, uh, or um misframing of each of your administration's approaches to waters of the United States. Um and love to hear your thoughts on kind of what was most prominent, um, the most prominent misconceptions or the most prominent distortions um of each of your uh each of your administration's actions on waters of the US. So uh, maybe start with Ken.
0: Sure. Um, well, there there were several. Um, I think probably the most predominant misconception was that the uh, rule was a, a an incredible expansion of the reach of federal authority over over waters in the United States, and um, and it was anything but. I think that uh, it recognized the limitations that the Supreme Court had had given the agencies in both Swank and Rapanos, um, and it uh, it was it was characterized as this great expansion of federal authority. But in fact, we thought of it as a more of a reflection of the way the agencies had had been uh, implementing the act. I think in many instances, it wasn't an expansion as much as it was a, a realization on the part of the potentially regulated community, just how uh, how many activities might be regulated under the Clean Water Act based on what the authority Congress gave the agencies in 1972 and how the agencies had been implementing the act. I think that uh, the act is by no means uh, implemented uniformly across the nation. As Dave mentioned, uh, in talking about who makes the determinations of jurisdiction, overwhelmingly those determinations are made by the Corps of Engineers. The Corps of Engineers has 38 districts around the nation that makes these determinations, um, the Corps will readily admit, and anybody who follows this would readily admit, that if you took the exact same circumstances and gave it to all 38 districts, you would not get the same answer 38 straight times. So, uh, so, so there, was, there was this ambiguity and this lack of certainty that existed out there. So uh, I think that uh, another misconception was that we were regulating land use. Um, and that any, any activity inside a floodplain was suddenly going to require a permit from EPA, uh, which, of course, first of all, was, was EPA was a much easier to be the boogeyman because EPA doesn't issue these permits. The Corps does, but it was always EPA that was criticized. And, uh, of course, land use wasn't being regulated uh, as long as you didn't uh, affect a jurisdictional water, uh, whether it be a stream or wetland or an adjo- adjoining water Uh, A third one was that we were trampling on states' rights, Um, and I always found that to be a little curious because I wasn't sure what state right we were affecting, theoretically, uh, unless it was the right of a state to allow pollution or destruction of waters within that state, Uh, because the Clean Water Act has always been a floor uh, for for states' rights. Uh, It expressly provides in the act that the states can do more to protect their waters uh, and that they can assert jurisdiction over more waters. As I said, Congress's powers are limited, but states' powers are not limited within their states. And the last one is that it was violating uh, congressional intent. Um, And I always found it very curious that uh, people who uh, weren't even alive in 1972, uh, were arguing uh, what they they knew what congressional intent was, uh, when we were in fact relying on uh, the the limited congressional uh, history that accompanied the act. Uh, In fact, some of the authors of the Clean Water Act uh, from 72 were were part of this this whole debate. And that um, in fact, uh, congressional intent was being followed in that uh, Congress intended to uh, restore and maintain the nation's waters, not a very limited subset of those waters.
1: Hmm. Terrific insight, Dave. Uh, from from your time there and, and the Trump administration's actions on waters of the United States, um, how how were they? What were the misconceptions? What were the distortions? What what what, what are your perceptions around all that?
2: I think I'm going to begin by why anybody would willingly take the AA of water job, knowing that you'd have to revisit and write the Water's United States rule, is beyond me. Um, but uh, so setting that aside, um, you know, so perhaps suggesting I'm not a rational actor. Um, but uh, yeah, I guess you know there are a lot. Like like Ken mentioned for for the Obama team, there are a lot of misconceptions, um, and, and we had those as well. Um, I guess I'll focus on two um, of of many. Um, I get the first is science, you know, the, the talking point that, um, we didn't rely on science or we ignored science. Um, it just simply wasn't true. And, you know, I, you know, one of the, one of my better decisions I made, and maybe the best decision I made at EPA was to hire a a PhD wetland stream ecologist, uh, to come in and help us uh, craft a rule. Um, and so I had a, PhD in this area sitting next to me as we were crafting rules and crafting the language. Um, but, you know, and, and as an example, you know, the, the issue of climate change, right. Um, you know, last administration obviously took a lot of, a lot of hits on that, but, you know, we use science uh, to make the definitions we crafted adaptable over time. Um, and so you take a look at flow regimes today, they're not the same flow regimes that they were 10, 15 years ago, and they're not going to be the same flow regimes 15, 20 years from now. And so how do you build a nationwide rule without having to revisit and make it adaptable over time? And we leaned into science for that. And so, you know, what is a typical year? You look at hydrologic cycle and, um, and 30-year averages um, in an area in which you're doing the jurisdictional determination. So that's just sort of one example um, uh, about, you know, how we thought about contemplated science. Um, I think the other significant misconception is that our, our rule was based exclusively on Justice Scalia's uh, test, you know, the, the author of the conservative um, plurality opinion in Rapanos. Um, you know, the, it, part of that was a messaging issue. The executive order uh, the President Trump signed, um, so, you know, s- instructed the agency to consider and be informed by the Scalia opinion. Um, and so it, it, it establishes right out of the gate that it was going to be a Scalia rule. But I, I, you know, as as we looked at and crafted, you know, we um, I think as Ken mentioned, like the Obama administration did, did take a look at um, the multiple Supreme Court precedents out there and tried to balance Riverside Bayview, uh, the Swank decision, and the and the and the opinions in Rapanos to come up with what we thought were the rules of the road, the guiding principles, and then tried to stay within those guiding principles. Um, if Scalia was alive today, I think he'd take exception uh, to. to you know some of the jurisdictional calls we made and so i think i would uh, i'd push back on this is just a scalia only rule gotcha well
1: you both have mentioned uh the idea that some people think you you go went too far some people didn't think you went far enough these are these are the various stakeholders that are out there um and i'd love to kind of hear about your approaches to gathering input from the the various stakeholder categories to working with them and how you tried to to find success uh in those relationships um it's a it's very very challenging um you can't ever make everyone happy that's not going to happen um so kind of a kind of a wide open question there on on stakeholders and and how that all goes and and how you define success or feel like, okay, we landed in a good place when it comes to to stakeholder opinion. Um, Let's go to, let's go with Dave first on this one.
2: Yeah, well, from a stakeholder engagement, uh, Travis, I think this is where desire runs smack dab into reality. Um, You know, the you go in and want to do listening sessions and you want to do all the stakeholder outreach and you want to get people in a room. And quite frankly, the, the EPA career team and core career team do a really great job in that regard, and and you know develop great plans for for trying to gather the information not just in the formal public comment period, but the stakeholder listening sessions. I really you know wanted to do that. You know, I'd worked in a couple of states and and saw some opportunity for enhanced relationships between the states and the federal government. Um, you know, from a successful standpoint, you know, I, man, there are a couple of days where we pulled in. Um, you know eight or nine different states from different parts of the country with different political affiliations into a room the map room uh in the east building at epa and for two days just just talked about lotus and and how to come up with common ground and then uh in that in that same time period we also pulled in the tribal interests and spent a couple of days in the map room doing the same thing um i think the 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 what we got out of one learned a lot um but you in the state conversation, you know, even in that where only nine states are there and seeing wildly varying views of what should be regulated and not regulated, it was just a little snapshot as truly how hard this is. And so, you know, I've said it um, multiple times, you know, when I'm talking about this topic, you know, we were aiming, you know, that the, the, the environmental groups and the public property rights groups both really didn't like what we did. Um, and, and you can't satisfy both in this context and then in the middle where the regular entities, I think, you know, where we were aiming effectively mild disappointment, um, but can you live with it? And so, you know, as you're measuring success through mild disappointment, um, it's an odd place to be, <laughs> um, but it, that's, that's what we did. So yeah, yeah, it's tough, it's, it's really tough in this context.
1: Sure, sure. Yeah, it, it's, That's tough when your, your measure of success is everybody's somewhat disappointed because you didn't go too far one way or the other, and you landed somewhere in the middle. But Ken, your thoughts on working with stakeholders, uh, success um, on that front and so forth?
0: Well, uh, for us, uh, I mean, we, we did everything that we thought we could possibly do to engage stakeholders in the process. Um, we held... Uh, over 400 uh, meetings, briefings, some in uh, many in person, many uh, uh, electronically. Uh, we held uh, a number of those in, the, in DC at headquarters. Uh, we also tasked all 10 of the regions with doing outreach so people could uh, participate who didn't care to travel to Washington or, or didn't have the ability or desire to do something uh, remotely uh, and electronically. Uh, we all know from having lived through COVID Zoom uh, that uh, doing everything electronically is not the best way to, to have a, a, a 100% fruitful conversation. Um, I personally attended about 70 of those events uh, to try to learn as much as I possibly could from everyone. And I think that the success that came out of that uh, was that we were able to make choices with better information. Uh, and and that really is the key to me was it's it's important to hear what people's thoughts and opinions are but we also really wanted to hear uh uh, data from them we wanted to hear uh some real world thoughts on uh on our proposed changes to the jurisdictional rule Um, i'll give you a couple of examples Uh, i I made several trips out with uh, into the agricultural community uh, to get out of DC and talk to people. Uh, one, one in particular, I spent a day uh, working with some representatives of the agricultural community, uh, going out onto uh, a variety of farms uh, where people wanted to talk to me about uh, looking at our proposed rule and talking about this is how they view it would work when it was applied in their daily lives. And as a result, I in fact came back and tasked the team with making changes from the proposal to the final rule, um, and so success to me was that kind of information that was in, that enabled us to come up with a better rule. Uh, another example between proposal and final was how the final rule treated uh, roadside ditches uh, and and ditches on farmland uh, and, and the intersection between what was necessary to provide net, uh, sufficient drainage, flood control, uh, and, uh, economic opportunity and combine that with how to meld that with, how do we protect, uh, water quality, uh, knowing that that is the ultimate goal of the, of the clean water program. So those are just two examples, but as I say, those were changes that were made because of the success of the stakeholder engagement. Now, um, As Dave indicated, engaging with a stakeholder and listening to them doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to get what they asked for, Um, but it can help make a much better decision on the part of the agency.
1: Sure. Sure. Every time something happens with waters of the United States, or or between the big actions, uh, y- there's so much uh, voicing of opinion by these different stakeholder groups. You you know on their social media accounts or in the press. Um, you know this is this has been a a very active issue for many entities out there, environmental groups and uh, you know like you said, home builders or whoever it might be. Um, Why is the Waters of the United States jurisdiction, why is this such a big deal, such a big issue, such a focal point for for so many stakeholders out there? Um, Ken, we'll throw this one to you first.
0: Okay. Well, I I think in in the most simple terms, it's uh, people see regulation under the Federal Clean Water Act as a threat. Um, and uh, to, to their way of life, whether it's, uh, it's uh, uh, their economic way of life or their social way of life, or just how they see their role in the environment. And when I say a threat, um, it, is, it can be a threat in both directions. Overregulation can be viewed as a threat uh, to uh, ec- uh, economic interests, in particular, and under-regulation can also be a threat to economic interests uh, as, as well, and, and also to uh, aesthetics, uh, to people that are concerned about what kind of a place do we leave for our children and grandchildren and those kinds of issues. And so uh, and so, when you have people that think of, of, a, of a regulatory program as a threat potentially from both directions, um, then it becomes uh, a very serious issue for those interests. Uh as we talked about earlier, uh people in the agriculture industry, the property development side, resource extraction, uh they see over regulation as a threat. Uh people in the outdoor recreation economy see underregulation as a threat uh to their economic well-being. People in the conservation and environmental community see that as a threat to their lifestyle and what they want to do. Uh, you know uh there are a lot of really conservative people who go trout fishing uh, or go duck hunting, um, you know, uh, and so uh, so it, it it doesn't always break down on uh, ideological lines or on political lines, uh, but in fact there are so many diversions, diver, diversity. There's so much diversity of interest in who has an interest in protecting water and who has an interest in being able to, uh, develop and, and, and maintain an economic use of water, uh, that it creates a, it it creates a world where trying to get the two sides, uh, uh, in the same room and come up with the same conclusion is just extremely difficult. Mm. Yeah. Uh, Dave,
1: your thoughts on why, why this WOTUS issue is just so central to to so many of the stakeholders out there and they've invested so much energy and time and resources in in sharing their opinion and trying to mobilize and so forth
2: well i think ken did a really nice job laying out a lot of you know a lot of why this is such an important issue and so i think i'll add and maybe summarize a bit um it's the uncertainty Mm -hmm. you know so you know he mentioned ken mentioned i think it was a great example of of the air program right you know you know what it applies to and in, and in the WOTUS context, there's this gray area. And, you know, and so over time that gray area, you've, you know, Travis, you mentioned energy and investment. Um, you know, now it has sort of taken on this emotional religious significance. Um, and so it's building upon itself, but breaking it down to, I think just a simple, you know, single word, I'd say uncertainty. And it's, you know, where are you have uncertainty, How do you plan your affairs? Um, and so if you're a regulated community, um, you know, what you can do on the landscape, you know, comes down to cost money, certainty and planning, you know, how to get financing. Um, and so if, if you have a parcel that you may or may not have a regulated water, how do you grapple with that? And that is a really, in an investment, you know, investment context or the regulated community context, that lack of certainty, I think matters. Um, you know, and so it's, um, I I think I'd, you know, I think i'll leave it at that you know that's a that's a long conversation but i think the uncertainty really is is a, a core issue on on it
1: sure how much of this back and forth you know this this tennis match this ping pong match um is is about policy choices and and really the the clean water act jurisdiction and, and how much is it about you know, politics, really, you know, you see it, you see a different administration, political party come in, boom, it goes the other way. And obviously, we're in this kind of hyper political environment. Um, each administration is maybe expected by their supporters to do certain things. Um, yeah, that, that's a maybe a tough question, or maybe it's a really easy question. Um, Dave, we'll go to you first on this one.
2: Uh, I, I think it's, if- it's becoming much more about politics and perception and, uh, and perspective. Um, you know, there are obviously important drivers and Ken just laid out several for, you know, all, uh, stakeholders have, have, you know, connections to the issue for legitimate reasons. But over time I think it's really becoming about, um, politics and, and perception. Um, the war over WOTUS is, is hmm. is becoming a war for uh, you know for the sake of a war, um, and then that's maybe a bit um, overstated. But I I just think um, you know if you can drill down and actually take a look at the true dispute in Wotus, you can really get down to a fairly narrow set of issues. Hmm. Um, but the talking points I think overcome or overwhelm those that, those narrow
0: sets of issues. Yeah, Ken, your thoughts? Well. Um, I think that I, I think that there is a heavy element of, uh, of politics involved in this. Um, I do think that science has an important role to play. Uh, we always characterized uh, the extensive work that uh, uh, ORD, our Office of Research and Development, and the Science Advisory Board, and what they did to help inform the decision, was was extremely valuable to the agency. Um, but uh, we always emphasized that science informed the decision; it did not make the decision. Uh, because we were at, we were tasked with interpreting a law that politicians had written in 1972 and handed to the agencies to implement. And as Dave mentioned earlier, uh, Congress was not particularly helpful in terms of uh, defining what the scope of the act was. Uh, now, it's no secret that part of the reason that congress wasn't all that helpful is because they couldn't answer the question themselves Um, i worked enough years on capitol hill and i can't tell you that there were many times when we sat around a table and we couldn't agree on how to phrase or define something and ultimately the decision was we'll leave it up to the agencies and so we did and so in 1972 the whole scope question was uh, was heavily debated in uh, both chambers and congress ultimately as you can see um, sort of punted and, and it was uh, a pooch punt at best. And so, uh, uh, the, uh, so, you know, it, it's, so it, it, it lives in a political world. Uh, there, there's no way to get around that. Um, but science is really key. Uh, if, if you're going to take approach that we're going to try to maximize Uh, or I shouldn't maximize is probably the wrong word because I don't want to indicate that we're going to stretch that, that, that we should stretch everything to the nth degree. But if you're going to try to be as protective as you think Congress intended the agencies to be, then you need to rely on science to draw some of those lines and, and, and how do upstream waters affect downstream waters. Uh, no, you know, as I said earlier, many water bodies are. There's no, there's never a question of whether they're covered by the Clean Water Act and discharges would require permits. Um, it's smaller water bodies. Uh, David mentioned the uh, distinction between intermittent and ephemeral streams. Well, that's a hard question to answer. Uh, but you have to take a look. What does the science tell you about the value of those streams uh, in terms of protecting downstream waters? Uh, the same for, uh, for water body or for wetlands that are not directly adjacent to a navigable water. Then you have to look at the science and say, does the science indicate that there's enough of a reason to want to protect these waters? And then uh, ultimately, the agencies are going to say, well, the science says. Uh, yes, they're really important, but can, is it important to us politically? Uh, or the, no, the waters aren't particularly important, but is it still important to do it, uh, to protect them politically, or is it important to us not to? Um, and so those questions always get, have to be asked and answered, uh, when you get farther and farther from the waters that everybody would agree should be protected.
1: When we were kind of preparing for this podcast, you all uh, raised a, a really, uh, Fascinating point, maybe surprising point to a lot of people, uh, but I thought incredibly insightful, and that's about really the overall importance of this Waters of the United States definition, uh, and particularly in comparison to other sections of the Clean Water Act, that maybe this has been magnified uh, a bit more than it should be um, this, this war over WOTUS, like I think you, you said pretty aptly, Dave, uh, Ken, what are your thoughts on, on that?
0: Well, I think that the definition is, is critically important because, uh, from the regulatory program, um, the, uh, the the whole act is triggered by whether or not a water is considered to be a water of the U S. And, uh, if it's, if it is considered to be a water of the United States, then you need a permit or you have to comply with other provisions of the act if you're going to discharge a pollutant into it. Uh, if if it's not covered, then the regulatory program of the Clean Water Act simply doesn't apply. And so any prohibition on pollution or destruction is going to be something that, uh, that uh, it, it, the, the act doesn't protect it. It also means that um, uh, a, a water feature would not be eligible for uh, cleanup or uh, of hazardous substance or oil pollution spills, uh, because that provision of the Act is also written in terms of navigable waters. But, um, and I'll let Dave expound in a little bit more, because I, I, I know this is an issue that, that he's been very articulate on, and that is, but the Clean Water Act also has a lot of uh, provisions that are non regulatory. And so uh, the question then becomes, are they sufficient to provide the restoration and maintenance of the nation's waters that Congress outlayed as the objective? And so, I think I'll I'll, uh, I'll let Dave take it on to the to the next step.
1: Yeah, Dave, what are your thoughts on this this angle here?
2: Yeah, well, I guess the perspective I bring is, you know, as a as a former, you know, I, I grew up in D.C. as you know, in professionally you know, as a policy wonk, and there's this focus on wotus and the jurisdictional issues and i think the the thing that people forget is that is it actually is a very large statute it's a very complicated statute um and you know i spent you know as much or more time um uh, you know running epa office of water as a bank i mean and so the the most important programs both on the clean water act and the safe drinking water act side are are really the money the grant programs the loan programs that that Congress takes taxpayer resources and it funnels it through the agency to then wheel it back out to 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 build infrastructure to to, to develop protective standards and so you know the in the grand scheme of things you know I think Ken is right. It, WOTUS is critically important because it tells you where um, the jurisdiction of the federal government begins and ends. Um, I think what's lost in the conversation, quite frankly is, you know, there are 50 states out there that have very, very capable programs. I work for two. Um, And so it's the conversation is not just, you know, under the Clean Water Act. If the federal government doesn't regulate, um, it's not regulated. There are states there that have have amazing programs. Um, But it is important, Um, you know, where you establish the standards, you know, what funding the states may get, you know, how do you prioritize certain water bodies in recovery, um, obviously, WOTUS is integrated into that entire suite of regulatory uh, solutions under the Clean Water Act. But you know, as as I spend time, you know, with uh, Andrew Sawyer's team and the MPDS Permitting Program, and you know, in their their state revolving fund program and the funding, it's there's so much that the Office of Water does that that you know the word WOTUS never really crosses their lips. And so I think I think in that respect, WOTUS probably has an over uh, inflated sense of itself um, in the policy debates within the within DC. Mm.
1: Last question, uh, maybe maybe the toughest. Uh, is there is there a sweet spot? Is there a way to reach a compromise? Um, like if you were to take the politics out of it somehow, which is a great challenge. You know, if you two as as individuals that led the office of water under different administrations, different political parties were tasked with going into a room and, and forging a compromise. Um, what might that look like? Is it possible to reach one who wants to, who wants to take a swing at that? (laughs) Well,
2: I, 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 I'll, I'll start. Um, it is, it it is, you know, it's the money wall question, right? Um, you know, obviously I'm, you know, I'm biased. Um, you know, I, I, I thought we tried to aim for compromise. Um, obviously there are folks who wildly disagree with that on both sides. Um, but it's, it, I would like to believe that compromise is possible. Um, but whether or not because of the spiritual significance and the emotional connection to the issue, it's feasible is, is an open question. Uh, you know, I just, I, I talked not too long ago to a Western States water group, um, Diverse membership of the states. I love them. Great group of people. Um, and you know, they had they asked this question, and I, I sort of turned it back around to them and said, "Look, if if this group can get together and come up with a compromise, and you know, just focus on the the disputed issues, right? You know, intermittent, ephemerals, you know, the the isolated, you know, ponds, wetlands. You know, as you get a little bit further away from the main stem, if you guys can come up with a solution as the diverse group of states." And make a recommendation to the EPA administrator. I think that would carry a significant amount of weight. Um, and of course, you know, the reaction in the room was, "Yeah, how do you get <laughs> Wyoming and California on the same page, right?" Mm. But I, so I would, if I would, if I would try, I would really try to get states to come up with a compromise solution and make a recommendation to EPA that if the states can live with it. Um that is a huge because the states are sort of the litigation drivers in today's world. It wasn't the case ten, fifteen years ago. It was industry or ENGOs, and now you have blue and red state AGs who are really driving hmm. national policy litigation. Um if you can get the states to compromise, I think you've got a chance. Um I, I'm confident Ken and I could get in a room and probably map something out um if we didn't have to worry about any other constituencies. Um but it's it's um I don't know. I, 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 I don't have a lot of hope. Um, and so I, you know, each administration that comes in is just going to have to find, find its way. And ultimately I think either Congress or the Supreme court is going to have to, it's going to have to answer some questions for us.
1: Mm, interesting. Ken, your thoughts on the possibility or the path to a compromise
0: well, um, obviously, if there was a readily available compromise, it would have been found a long time ago. Um, so, it, because it hasn't been for lack of searching, uh, but uh, the uh, I think a compromise is an extremely difficult concept uh, in today's uh, world. Uh, the idea of compromise seems to somehow, uh, be a litmus test for politicians, uh, that are seeking office. And, uh, you know, people are afraid of, of having, uh, primaries run against them because they've reviewed as being too willing to compromise with members of the other party. Um, I mean, to me, that's just, thank you very much. That's a recipe for stalemate inaction and ineffective government, uh, You know, uh, I mentioned, uh, Travis, when we talked before this, that, you know, when I came to the Capitol Hill in in the 1980s, uh, we did an awful lot because people compromised. Um, I I never lose sight of the fact and remind people that, you know, both the 1972 Clean Water Act was enacted over a veto with large bipartisan majorities. And the 1987 amendments to the Clean Water Act was enacted, uh, they were enacted over a veto with very large bipartisan majorities, I don't believe that today, if you put the current Clean Water Act text before Congress, that you could pass it. Um, I, and so that's the kind of climate that we currently live in. And um, you know, there's a lot of ways people look at compromise. People talk about, well, if if the people on the left don't like it and the people on the right don't like it, I must have found a middle, a, a happy middle spot. Um, But my experience was that the way you found compromise was that people came into a room with the intent of coming out of that room with an agreement. And if the parties go in wanting to come out with an agreement, then both sides should walk out saying, I got enough of what was of of importance to me to say that I'm willing to support this package. And today's climate just isn't really very conducive to that. I think another problem I wanted to focus on in terms of compromise, um, you know, uh, Dave and I probably, if just the two of us were left, um, I'm guessing that we, we, we might very well come out of a room with a compromise, but we're not starting with a blank sheet of paper, and that's the problem that we have right now. We have a statute that's been in place for 50 years. We have 50 years of experience at the state and, uh, and federal level in implementing that statute. The agencies have gone through 50 years of experience. The states have gone through 50 years of experience. We have 50 years of court cases uh, from district courts all the way up through the Supreme Court uh, that have to be reconciled with any action that the agencies might take. And so, um, and so the, uh, the blank sheet doesn't exist. Um, I think that uh, Dave's suggestion of trying to get a diverse group of states in particular uh, to come up with a position would be extremely helpful to the agencies. but. Um, but even then, the agencies would have to view it as informative to their decision because the agencies are going to be the ones that have to reconcile anything that they do with what they believe the law allows them to do and require or requires them to do. Um, and and that's one of the great difficulties in trying to uh, develop the idea of compromise. Um, when I was at the agency, we would have welcomed uh the state's groups coming in and speaking with one voice and saying, we think this is the best way to address the issue because uh, ultimately they are all uh, representing uh, the people closer to, uh, to, the, to, the go- to the governing entity than the federal government does. Uh, And, and that would have been extremely helpful, but the states weren't capable of doing that. Uh, As Dave mentioned, states are parties to the litigation. You've got a number of states uh, who are litigants on both sides of, of the 2015 rule. And, um, and so, and so you end up in in this dilemma where compromise may be out there, um, but the political climate right now is uh, extremely unfriendly to the type of compromise that would be would be necessary. Because ultimately, a true compromise would require Congress to act, and um, Congress is, I think, incapable of acting on any uh, of the significant environmental statutes, Clean Water Act, among them.
1: Hmm. Well, maybe the follow-up to this is going to be a, a live stream of a. Uh, uh, conference room and put the two of you in there maybe someone from california someone from wyoming and and locked doors uh you know drop pizzas and in through the ceiling and just stay in there until this thing gets done and and people can watch that happen
0: (laughs) well that's that that would only be acceptable if you allow both dave and i to to edit whatever we want out of your uh, recording
2: (laughs) 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 fair enough fair enough I think all great compromise does begin with, uh, with pizza though. So it's a, that's the a first good stuff. You see, you see,
1: there step. we go. That's if anything, there's any takeaway from this conversation today, it's, it's, gets a pizza involved and see if that can help things.
0: Yeah. They begin with pizza and they end with beer.
1: There you go. Yeah. There you go. Exactly. Oh, yeah, sure. Well, Ken and Dave, I, I really appreciate, um, having both of your thoughts for this. Uh, I feel very fortunate to have you both come together for this conversation. I appreciate your willingness to do it. Thank you both very much. And yeah,
0: well, thanks. thanks I'm Travis.
2: Travis. Oh, sorry, Ken. I, cut, I cut you off.
0: I was just going to say thank you, Travis, for the invitation. Uh, I enjoyed our, our ability to, to share our thoughts, uh, uh, on this uh, critical issue that it really does need to, it, it needs to be, uh, It needs to be made more stable uh, for everybody involved, whether you're a regulator or the regulated community or the beneficiaries of that regulation. Uh, Stability is going to be key because the next administration can't simply come in and say, we're going to rewrite it again. And then the following administration and the following administration, it just will not work. Mm To that we uh, we have complete agreement, Ken.
2: Um, <laughs> so uh, thanks. I, I uh, likewise, uh, Travis. Thanks for the invitation. It's been a great conversation, and uh, and keep up the great work. Uh, and keep up your podcast. You you reach a lot of listeners and a lot of important topics.
1: Thank you very much. Waterloop. Thanks everyone for listening to today's episode. A special thanks to Waterloop supporters, Springpoint Partners, and the Walton Family Foundation. The Waterloop podcast is sponsored by High Sierra Showerheads, the smart, stylish way to save energy, water, and money while enjoying a powerful shower. Use promo code LOOP20 for 20% off at HighSierraShowerheads.com. If you like Waterloop, please subscribe to the YouTube channel or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on social media and visit Waterloop.org to sign up for updates.
0: Waterloo, Waterloo, Waterloo.